Hello and welcome to another episode of the Barefoot Mediator podcast, news and views from Jane Gunn and guests. In this episode, I speak with Dr. Colleen Thuez, who is Director of the Welcoming and Inclusive Cities Division at the Open Society Foundation in New York. Before that, Dr. Thuez served for 17 years in a leadership position at the United Nations, serving under Secretary General Kofi Annan and as advisor to the Secretary-General's Advisor on Migration. Colleen has a passionate interest in cities and their influence in international policymaking on migration and refugee protection. So, welcome, Colleen. Thank you, Jane. Lovely to be with you. Thank you so much, Colleen. We we were just reminiscing. We met about ten years ago. We were both um, guests, uh, fortunately, at a lunch at the United Nations uh, of a dear friend called Ambassador Kamal, and we've kept in touch since then. But um, you were working then at the United Nations. So tell us about your role there. Sure. Yes, I was the head of the Institute for Training and Research, what is known as UNITAR, the head of the office in New York at the time. And a lot of the work um, involved training new diplomats who were arriving in New York. You know, it was the top of the Revlon line. This is where diplomats all want to come to negotiate matters of peace and security. And so UNITAR was the place that taught them about the rules um, of engagement to, for instance, serve and represent um, their country on the Security Council, or for instance, the voting mechanisms, of the General Assembly, and all of these kind of mechanical issues of the UN, but also on the main policy um, challenges of our time. So a lot of work on understanding um, the complexity of, of different transnational challenges, at the same time developing the skills, as you well know, Jane, uh, to be able to navigate and communicate and um, find consensus uh, amongst nations and this was the role of of, this is the role of of diplomats and of their of their staff um, at the UN and and that was um, my job at the time. And one of the things I think you were very passionate about and involved in is diversity and mobility is that right sort of looking across? That is correct yes that is correct I before coming to New York I was in Geneva and there I had the honor and the privilege to serve on Secretary General Kofi Annan's Global Commission on Migration. And it was the first commission of states that were really looking into human mobility, to migration across borders as a transnational challenge and also as a transnational opportunity. Um, before the 1990s, for instance, um, migration, as it was more generally, you know, the, the term that was used was something that was considered a bilateral issue between two countries, the United States and a Mexico, or a France and a Morocco, um, and less uh, something that is relevant to all nations together, um, a true multilateral issue. And now we know that both the patterns of human mobility, um, the fact that there is almost no country that is just a point of origin or a point of destination, they're either both and also a transit country, and that mobility is circular um, with all sorts of different types of movement uh, mean that it really does require a forum like um, like the United Nations and like um, places where uh, countries but now also cities can come together to address um, to address the challenges and the opportunities. Well that's fascinating Colleen because because we think of immigration and, and migration as being current problems but as you say you know people have been migrating around the world for centuries for generations and 
for us now, you know, there does seem to be a particular issue with with immigrants, with illegal immigrants. But I wonder how you see, from your perspective, people coming together to really understand and resolve this this conflict. That's that's absolutely correct, Jane. Um, you know, the movement of people is nothing new. Um, the post-war period uh, became a period to regulate certain things, like the you know the the the, the transfer of goods, for instance, became has become something that is highly regulated. Um, there are many other examples, but the regulation of people has been much more um, much more complex and, and much more complicated. Um, and since we were talking about my 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 professional um, you know history, my story, the the mission and passion that that guides my my um, you know my work, I eventually left the United Nations because um, of my 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 belief, my conviction that a lot of the solutions are not at the interstate level to um, issues of diversity and immigration, but are really at the local level, have to be driven and are in fact driven by local actors, um, by cities and, and, and by sub-regional um, governments. And so when you speak about you know, the trends of today, we know that um, the largest migration in human history is happening right now. There will be 3.9 billion people living in cities by the year 2030. And if you compare that to 309 million in 1950, it is a massive movement of people towards urban spaces, um, which uh, provides, as I mentioned a few minutes ago, challenges, but huge opportunities when you think and hear that um, newcomers in cities feel a close a closer association to their local representatives than they do to their national government. So when we speak of the public lack of public confidence in government, it often doesn't relate to local government. There is a much closer bond uh, between an individual and their identity as a Londoner um, or a Parisian than as a Brit or as a French person. And that's just a fact today. And that really means that you have opportunity when you look at how local governments and local actors are handling some of these issues around inclusion and welcome and integration. And so that is my story. I left the UN so that I could find myself in a context where I could help support and elevate the work that was happening locally around welcoming and inclusion. And two years ago, uh, the leading human rights uh, organization um, in the world, Open Society Foundations, OSF, created a division, a new division known as Welcoming and Inclusive Cities um, that I have the pleasure of now running. That's amazing, Colina. Thank you for sharing sort of that story and that history. I, I'm a, I was born in the city of London, actually. I'm a, I'm a Londoner. I was born there and I feel very drawn to cities. So that's why I love coming to New York as well. Uh, and, I, you know, I'm quite... Uh, missing being in London at the moment. And I'm wondering, you know, we're in a time at the moment where um, we, we're in the midst of this pandemic still, and um, that's having an impact on cities, I know, for some reasons that, you know, people are not coming in to work anymore. But I, I also see um, from my own work that people are then very much drawn to their local community because that's very much where they're both living and working now and so their local community becomes more important not less important to them and I, I wonder how you see that playing out perhaps in the future if, if we continue a different way of living and working. That's absolutely right, uh, Jane. And there's a, a really great book uh, for your listeners called Arrival City by a Canadian journalist who's 
London-based now, uh, Doug Saunders, and he speaks about a window of action. The opportunity to act is limited for um, city officials, but also for community leaders when it comes to new people coming into the community space. It is that moment, that window of time where a young person who is coming into a new community can feel um, included or can feel excluded. And, um, you know, to, to get to, to more into depth about what's happening at the community level, but first to make um, an observation that I have, um, I have noticed over the last decade or so um, is around this missed opportunity to include youth, even second generation youth in the European context. Let's talk about Belgium or France or even the UK. Um, and so some youth who grew up in the 90s and 2000 feel closer allegiances to places outside the place where they were either born or, and or where their parents were raised than they do to third countries. Why? Because that opportunity to act by the community, by local officials, the, narr the public narratives, the, the signaling by the places where these young people grew up or came to at a young age, were that you're an outsider, you're not an insider. Mm -hmm. And I have a great story to tell, and it's actually, it's a, it's, a it's a tragedy. But one day I was sitting in a meeting because I started to work a lot at one point in time with Belgian cities. And I was in a meeting with a group of local officials who were speaking about the challenges um, with a minority youth in these smaller Belgian towns. And one Bel Belgian official shared her recount of a conversation with a principal. And the principal was talking about the positive inducements to get minority students not to speak Arabic in the high school, but to speak, uh, in this case, uh, Flemish. And the incentive was that at the end of the week, if the Arabic speaking students didn't speak Arabic, they would get a falafel or a shawarma. And the Belgian ch children, not to exclude them, would get some French fries. It's that type of distinction, those, those, those subtle or not so subtle in that case, types of incentives that from an early age distinguish between people, between people who feel like outsiders and those who feel like insiders. Mm -hmm. And, and the, the way that it's playing out here in the United States, and when I draw this parallel, some people are either irritated or afraid. But I'll, I'll share it with you, Jane, because my work right now very much involves understanding who is excluded in communities and finding who are the champions who can correct the problem. And the example that I wanna give with you, that I wanna share with you is when COVID, the pandemic hit um, the United States and New York City after Seattle quickly became the epicenter of the COVID, COVID epidemic. Open Society Foundations, the president decided to make a major investment in US cities with one particular objective in mind. The objective was to make sure that undocumented people, either parents of families of US children, mixed status families as they're called, or others, anybody who was not receiving federal assistance because of their legal status would be getting cash assistance of some other kind. And that cash assistance was coming from our foundation and calling on local foundations to contribute. So you might imagine in 30 different cities and towns and localities, these platforms, these programs to get cash to people who wouldn't get federal assistance were put in place as quickly as possible and as carefully as possible. Why am I sharing this story with you? Because the whole time it was going through my mind are those conversations of 10 years ago 
with the Belgian cities about these Belgian youth who are not feeling like real Belgians or real French or real Europeans. Similarly, how does a US kid feel when their parent is not getting the type of assistance that neighbors are getting in a crisis like this one? How do you convince that child that this is their country, one that they need to represent with pride, defend, you know, fully inculcate in their own identity when they are marginalized in ways like this at times like this? So I do see a parallel, sorry. And I do see a parallel between the, what has become and whatever people wanna say, certainly some evidence of the extremism in Europe is in relation to people's disassociation with the place that raised them and that rejected them. And similarly here, when you have young children, whether they were born here or not, who are in effect Americans, who are treated like not just second-class citizens, are treated less than that because they're seeing also their parents suffer by a system that has encouraged them to be here and to work here, but then a time like this provides no social safety net at all. Yes, I was just going to say, Colleen, those are amazing stories. Obviously, there are many of them. And um, I've interviewed before someone called jo Joanna Kolofsky, who uh, works in uh, Australia, and she works with the Aboriginal people there. But um, her description of uh, it being the next second and third generations that feel excluded um, absolutely mirrors what you're saying. And one of the one of the concepts that I work with as a, as a conflict resolver is that we often feel disconnected if someone makes us feel either less than, smaller than them or smaller than we might be, you know, smaller than our potential. Uh, and also if we feel that we're excluded from a particular group or a particular level of society. And I think, you know, that happens across all sorts of different areas uh, we've spoken before about you know women in society but there are so many different levels of uh, people who feel excluded in some way at some level in society and those things have all got to be worked on otherwise we do have a divisive society for sure Absolutely. And there's really interesting um, policy research that's coming out um, by an outfit known as more in common led by an Australian, Tim Dixon, you may know him, uh, Jane, and, 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 and a French, Franco-American, I think, Mathieu Lefebvre. Uh, and they, what, they're trying to get to the heart of um, feelings of inclusion or exclusion in many uh, instances. And in, they do case studies in, in the United States and in, in France and in the UK and elsewhere in Germany. And they, what they've tried to do is break down the usual categorizations of uh, gender or age or socioeconomic class. And they use very interesting um, variables to get to a new typology that has a lot to do with belief systems, That's background and religion, and, and more in common. Is it, and, and I was rereading some of the conclusions that they had for certain countries um, and the association between the propensity to feel excluded and the level of socioeconomic development, but also layered in some of these other more um, um, feelings-oriented, you know, um, spiritual education um, aspects of an individual, the extent to which they would be more prone to community life because of that experience and education or not, for instance, 
and, and other factors. So it's quite interesting. I think it's fascinating to think, you know, on what level can we find this commonality? On what level can we find this connection that unites us around the world? And particularly today, when I think we're seeing so many areas where we need to collaborate, you know, whether it's environment, whether it's a pandemic, you know, there are so many different things that we now need to be uniting globally against. We can't operate against some of the issues and some of the conflicts that we face in society on a national level anymore, let alone on a local level, we have to come together as as one and finding how do we do that? You know, what does that look like? What does it feel like? I, I don't know, but I think, you know, there's a lot of work to do there. Someone wrote this morning about the fact that we, you know, a, a lot of people have talked about uh, the different uh, age groupings and, you know, where do you fit in society in terms of age? And again, we've got to break down those barriers because you might have someone who's highly effective. And I, I remember the name, somebody whose book I read recently and she'd written this book at the age of 102. Oh, my goodness. So, you know, I think there are people who are operating still at so many levels that, you know, why could we not gain wisdom from a 10 year old or look at Greta Thunberg, for example? You know, we've got wisdom of all ages that can be combined without breaking people down and saying, you know, you're only capable of this because you fit into that box, if you like. And I, I think, you know, that's that's some of the work we need to do. So one of the things I've been asking my guest, Colleen, is to think, you know, obviously we're talking about quite big problems and, and we're talking about, you know, work that you do on quite a high level, both at United Nations and now where you are open society. But what can we as individuals, what can people who may be listening to this podcast, where can we start to tackle some of these big issues to, to if we're interested in, if, if listeners are interested in what you're talking about, how do we as individuals engage and come together or, or what can we even do in our own lives to start to to make a difference well the good news is that there's a lot that can be done um in the in the daily life of of, of individuals who have an interest in championing the rights of more mar marginalized individuals in their community who often are in the shadows who often are not um you know who are often not people you you would necessarily know are facing these these challenges and these struggles because of for instance their legal status in the country the first thing that you can do is get active um, and be active in the defense the legal defense of these individuals in small ways or in small ways in consequential ways but in ways that we don't um think about twice and so uh, what is you know what is our our, our daily grind to somebody else is, is something that um, is a huge privilege. And here I'm speaking about, for instance, um, um, you know, when you are in a school setting and you um, want to understand whether uh, an individual has um, more challenges because they English is not their first language, um, to inquire if you are on a board of, uh, of that school, whether there are opportunities to access um, um, uh, secondary language instruction in English to advance in your English um, uh, language fluidity. I mean, these are things that seem, uh, as I say, uh, trite, but are hugely important going back to our conversations around confidence that often are not verbalized and yet are fundamental. L language access is the number one thing 
um, when it comes to advancing on education. And right now with the COVID pandemic, it's a serious issue when it comes to trying to share public health information is you simply need to understand that there are communities out there whose English is not at the level of understanding or the native tongue, whatever it is. And that you need to be both sensitive to communicating in languages that can, in ways that, that, that these communities can understand, but also offering them opportunities to um, quickly um, um, learn the, the, the language of, of the country, whatever that country is, since we're talking about, the, um, about English. I would also add, and this is one US example, but it goes to the subtleties of the barriers that people face when they are newcomers, when they are immigrants, when they are asylum seekers. In the United States, in most public um, schools, education uh, establishment, there is a policeman at the door. And that's for all sorts of reasons and mainly public security ones. To get past the policeman, for instance, to go to see and, and meet with your child's teacher for a parent-teacher meeting, you have to show identification. That means that for years in a place like New York City, for decades, if not half a century or longer, since there have been people without documents in New York City, those parents could not go and meet the teacher of their child to have a conversation around their chi the child's performance or any other concerns, worries, or opportunities that the rest of us get to have. That has changed because people understood that and now there are in the city of New York and in many other cities, identification cards, the municipal IDNYC as it's called in New York. And just this card, this identity card, allows for things um, that would not have otherwise been, like the example that I've just provided. Now, in a very intelligent fashion, Muni ID, the IDNYC card, the ID, Municipal Identification Card from New York City, now in Barcelona, Barcelona and elsewhere, they've made sure that it's not a card only for these people, but it's a card for all New Yorkers with all, all sorts of benefits in terms of being, you know, access to museums and discounts on this and the other, because they understand that the story of the city has to belong to everyone. And this goes back to the original beginning of this conversation on how do youth in particular perceive themselves included, excluded, and how do you get there? The storytelling, the embodying, the representation through people who, who speak on your behalf, the ability to participate, the ability to voice, to actively be part of a political conversation. These are all fundamental to all people regardless of status once they're residing in a city context. Sao Paulo has an example for the, their local city council includes refugees and undocumented migrants in the political participation and eventually in the design of services in the city because they know that without them they won't have all the information and they'll be designing things without the people who are ultimately going to benefit from them. I'm glad you've used the word story there actually Colleen because it is you know and for me the work that I do the mediation work that I do it's it's all about story at the end of the day I mean to me everything's about story it's what is my story what is your story where do we find you know, how do I understand your story? How do you understand my story? And then do we have a joint story? Is there something where we both belong to a story? It's a little bit like, you know, it is a little bit like a movie script in a way. And we're, you know, we're writing that as we go along, but seeing things in the context of story and how can we create the story and how can we create a story where people feel part of the cast, if you like, they don't feel they're just spectators. They feel they're on screen as well and they're part of the whole thing and they have an important part. Um, I, I think this is just fascinating and, and there's just so much 
to do and i think we do all need to get a grip of what you know what is it what can we do to create this sense of one world and one purpose and you know where where we're all going absolutely and you know the you have a mayor in in um the uk uh, mayor marvin reese in bristol who i'm absolutely privileged to to call a friend and who is um who is telling his story um as a way of 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 bridging understanding um, on so many levels, differences in socioeconomic class, different um, um, racial identities. And one of the things he often says is that people, and, and I think he refers to the media and maybe the po political forces, try and, and, and tell my story as one or another, a black or white story, a successful or an unsuccessful story. And that you know this binary attitude towards storytelling is so unhelpful because it's all in the nuance and the complexities and the layers of storytelling that you get to a full appreciation. And especially when somebody's telling you those complexities to be able to, to, to just shut your mouth and hear yes. without judgment. Yes. And, um, and, and I'm so pleased then to, to say that, you know, we're, we're exploring with uh, Mayor Reese really fascinating work around um, race and identity and leadership. Um, the, you know, the, 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 how, what that story looks like for people and how it can inspire new generations. Well, I'd love to learn more about that, Colleen, and maybe, you know, we'll, you'll be able to put me in touch so that I can, can do that. Um, and yeah. so I wonder then, you know, what your message to, to listeners would be, what, what kind of message would you like to leave people with in terms of, you know, what, what, what they can do and what, what they might draw from what you've said today? Uh, well, thank you very much, Jane, for this opportunity. And thank you for that question. You know, I, I touched on one thing, which is in your daily life, think about the obstacles that others might um, have that you don't have in the context of people who who might not feel fully part of the community. Mm -hmm. What are those obstacles and what role can you play in addressing them and, and, and bringing them to the surface in ways that allow people to tell their story and share the, what those obstacles mean to them and, and, and to come together on solutions on how to address them. Um, the municipal ID card being, being one example, but it started somewhere. It started in a local parent-teacher association of one kind or another. The other, um, the other ask I would have, or the other consideration for your, for, for your listening audiences, Jane, would be to expect as much as possible from your locally elected officials from mayors and local council members and even from your you know regional mps i say that because we are at a moment and benjamin barber talked about it back in 2013 the former great um benjamin barber why mayors should rule the world mayors should have much more of an influence on how things happen and national governments should not be afraid of it. They should embrace the fact that to get things done, they need to understand and to be more responsive to what's happening locally. And COVID has proved that time and again on the pace of action, on the directions of action, on the need to have the resources distributed locally and then determined locally. These are all things that have been critical in places where the pub public health response has been what it has been. And even in places where it hasn't been, we've seen that local governments have stepped up. So I would ask your audience to consider, do you have a relationship with your locally elected officials? And if not, why don't you establish one and let them know what needs to happen? They're expecting that from you just as you're expecting it from them. 
And I do think it's our best hope in regaining some sort of trust and confidence in government, if not for us and for our children. I think that's a wonderful message to end on, Colleen. You know, one of the things I've been asking my guests is who can lead us into the future. And we keep looking and then being disappointed by our national leaders. But maybe that's not where we should be looking anymore. We should be looking to our our local areas, to our, our local communities and to our role in being able to, you know, make those relevant to us. That's the message I take from you. Absolutely. Absolutely. Um, it is both uh, um, OSF is a place that is that is really um, coming to to terms and to the age and, and, and empowering, I would say, the marriage of civic action, of local action, of civil society in all its greatness with the power and influence of locally elected officials to get things done. Wow, the message of civil society. I'm completely inspired, Colleen. So if any of our listeners want to get in touch with you, how do they do that? I know you write regularly on these uh, kind of things. So just leave us then with somewhere in which people can follow up and, and read some of your thoughts on this. I do. I have the pleasure of, of writing and, and teaching on this subject. Um, and I'm constantly uh, you know, learning more from new generations of, 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 of students and, and young people who are just coming into this world and wanting to change it in, in the ways that it needs to be changed. And I think LinkedIn is probably the first um, um, point, uh, the easiest one, and one where we can also get into conversation, more conversations like the ones that you, the, the one that you've initiated. Thank you so much, Jane. Excellent, uh, Colleen. Well, I will make sure that your LinkedIn uh, connection is put in the show notes for this uh, podcast. So Colleen Thuez, thank you so much. It's been an absolute delight to be with you again, to, to speak with you again. And thank you for your time today. It's an honour. Thanks, Jean. Thank you for listening to this podcast. If you enjoyed this episode, please share it with your friends and colleagues. Please do subscribe to the Barefoot Mediator podcast series. And if you would like to access my free video series for managing in times of change, challenge and crisis, and download a PDF copy of my book, How to Beat Bedlam in the Boardroom and Boredom in the Bedroom, please go to janegunncouk slash video. The link is in the show notes.